You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. This is a sermon from our series, A Better Way. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right, you can have a seat. Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well. For those of you who are new um, with us or you're visiting or I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Clint Ware. I'm one of the pastors on staff um, at the church and just want to say that we're glad you're here with us. Um, If there's anything we can do for you, um, I can do for you personally or our church can do for you or your family, we'd love to do that. So please let us know. Fill out a connect card. RJ said this earlier, but make sure you let us know you're here. It's so easy in a church like this to slip in and do whatever we do and then slip out. Um, And we don't want that to happen, right? We want to know you're here and love to help you any way we can, so please take a moment to do that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you or on your phone, there should be some around you, and I really would love if you'd open to John 4 this morning. No shame. You can turn to the table of contents, get there. That's not going to be on the screen. John 4, we're going to spend most of our time there uh, this morning. There will be some other text on the screen, but I feel like you're going to be lost if you don't turn there, so I'd love for you to get your eyes on the Word of God this morning. Real quick before we get going, um, uh, before we read God's word together and allow him to speak to us through the pages of scripture, I want to make sure you heard something in our announcement video this morning that on October 28th, we're going to celebrate as a church family the person and work of Jesus Christ as we get to baptize men and women in our church. And man, we are super excited about this. Again, it's on October 28th. um, And... And what what these men and women are going to do, they're going to get in the water, they're going to make this public declaration of who Jesus is and what he's done specifically for them in their life. And that's what baptism is, a public declaration before God and in front of the church that I was broken and then Jesus met me in my brokenness, that he saved me and he healed me. And since then, God has been, this is what baptism is, since then God has been allowing us to, allowing me as they're in the water, allowing me to have greater and greater victory over my sin as I lean into him and lean into the promise, not to my own strength, but lean into the promise that he gives me that I am welcome, as we just saying, in the presence of God because of what Christ has done for us. Like that's, that's good. And this is going to be a, a significant moment in the life of our church. On October 28th, we're going to celebrate the baptism of men and women. And the reason why I mention it this morning is because next Sunday on October, I don't even know what next Sunday is going to be, okay? Next Sunday at 9 a.m., in the Gardens Chapel, we are gonna have a baptism class. And I'm mentioning that because I want to extend an invitation to you. We already have a good list of men and women and and some children who are gonna be baptized because of their faith in Jesus, because he is Lord. I just wanna extend the invitation to you because we believe the scriptures teach that the Bible says that if you are a believer in Jesus, baptism isn't something that you could do, but rather it's something you should do. We believe that this is what the Bible teaches, and so our baptism class is really just opening that conversation. So if you're interested in that, if you're a believer in Jesus, you haven't been baptized, love for you to come to the class. Again, during this service, you have to shift your schedule around Sunday morning, but it's going to be across the way there. If you have questions, just show up, ask, where's the baptism class? We'll get you there, answer questions for you. Maybe you're from a tradition uh, where you were baptized as a baby or you're baptized as an infant, and you have questions about that. This is a great place for you to come. We can just dialogue about that and open the process there. Again, next Sunday, 9 a.m., in the Gardens Chapel. All right, I'm gonna get to work, got a lot to do. It's gonna be fun this morning. Um, I'm gonna start by saying this. Several years ago, I was on staff at a church in Texas, and so this was a large church staff, and so because of that, it was easy for us to kind of get isolated, get siloed into spaces in our own kind of departments of ministry. And so the way we tried to combat this, I didn't make the decision, other people did, was take a half day or a full day every once in a while, and we called it Staff Fun Day. 
okay? And so we would go and play top golf or go bowling or whatever. And literally the whole purpose was just to connect with one another, build relationships, and actually know the people you're locking arms with as you do ministry. And so on one of these so-called staff fun days, um, we went to see a movie that just came out, okay? So, so here's what you need to know about me. Bill's obviously a movie guy. Every illustration has something to do with a movie. You won't see that from me because I'm, I'm not a movie guy, okay? This is gonna be my only movie illustration probably ever in, in my preaching history here. Uh, and it's not even really about the movie, you'll see here in a second. So I'm not a movie guy. Most of the TV I watch is sports related, okay? There's a ball involved at some level being passed back and forth or caught or dropped or tackled. Something's happening with a ball if I'm watching TV. Um, but what I noticed about this movie was people were stoked about it. Okay, so we're taking our staff fun day. Usually we would go to Top Golf. I'm thinking that's a blast, okay? Hanging out with my buddies playing Top Golf, and now we're going to a movie. It's like there's a disconnect here, okay? So, anyways, people are stoked on it. Several members of our staff had already seen the movie, and there's a bunch of pastors, so they're geeking out about how there's these redemptive storylines and this messianic figure and all this stuff going on. And at this point, again, I'm not a movie guy, but I'm interested at this point because they're going crazy about it. Keep in mind, I had no framework for what the movie was, okay? Hadn't read the book, okay? I grew up in Southwest Georgia. I read the amount that was required of me to graduate from public school, okay? <laughs> Which is not much, in case you're wondering. Um, so I didn't read the book. I knew two things about the movie. A lot of people I know are going crazy about it, okay? And then I knew that Hugh Jackman was in it, okay? which not a movie guy, but I knew Hugh Jackman was Wolverine. Okay, I put that together, I've seen those. And so I'm thinking, this is an action movie, okay? This is what's gonna happen. Chances are, someone's gonna disrespect someone else, probably gonna fight, probably over a girl, Hugh's gonna win. Like I already know what's going on in the conversation, but I was wrong because the movie was Les Mis, okay? <laughs> and, which in retrospect, it's a great movie, okay, it is. But I lacked an essential piece of information about this movie that it was a musical, okay? <laughs> so we're 20 minutes in, literally 20 minutes into the movie, I lean over to my buddy and I'm like, are they gonna sing the whole time, you know? <laughs> and so if you're on the edge of your seat, you haven't seen the movie, you're wondering, the answer is yes, the whole time, for two hours and 38 minutes, they dialogue back and forth through song, okay? Um, here's why I tell you that. If you haven't been with us the past few weeks, there is a crucial piece of information that you need to know before we jump in this morning. And, and, it's, and this is gonna save you from five, 10 minutes down the road leading to your, to your friend beside you and going, are we really talking about this still in church, okay? The, the piece of information you need to know is that we are right in the middle of a sermon series on biblical sexuality, okay? Um, so that whole story was just to say that. Um, <laughs> And the reason why we're in the middle of a sermon series on sexuality and we're calling this series A Better Way is because we believe that sex is and it was God's idea, okay? So it wasn't like God's in the middle of creating Adam and Eve and he puts it together and then he has to step away for a second, he had to go to the bathroom and then at that point he's distracted, Satan sneaks in and gives us genitalia. Like that's not how it went down, okay? Sex is and was God's idea and it's part of his good and right design for humanity, it was a good gift that was given to his people. God gave this to us to be celebrated and to be stewarded. And the problem is this gift has absolutely been celebrated, right? But it has not been stewarded the way that God intended it to be stewarded. And the result on humanity and each one of us is absolutely devastating. Okay, to make matters worse, the church has been silent on this issue. Okay, and so Bill touched on this last week, but historically, if you grew up in church, the narrative that you would get about sex is don't do it, right? It's wrong, it's dirty. No, 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 bad, 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 until you get married and you have this really expensive party, you invite your friends over, and then now all of a sudden it's okay for you to do this thing that you've been told is wrong your whole life, right? Now it's supposed to be okay. And so 
we wanted to talk about this fall, take this fall to talk about what God actually says about sex because the church has failed to teach its real purpose. And man, like I said, the consequence on humanity has been absolutely devastating. Even for the people who followed the rules, right? So now, even if you followed the rules the best you can, now you have to spend your life trying to undo in your heart and your mind this association with sex that is dirty and that it's wrong. Even if you've done your best to go, no, it's bad, it's bad, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Like I know people, I have friends who were unable to celebrate this gift from God that was given to them. They were unable to celebrate that on their wedding night because of the, the, the weight on their life that felt like they were doing something wrong. They were doing something that they shouldn't have done, something that God said should have been celebrated in that moment, that they should have been able to worship, they were unable to do that. Um, but God says that it needs to be enjoyed within this context of this relationship where he intended it, okay? And that relationship is a covenant, it's a marriage between one man and one woman. And so at times, lining our life up with the way God says we should live can feel restrictive, but in reality, this is the way to freedom in every area of our lives, but especially when it comes to God's design for sex, that his way is better. Again, a better way. We don't have the time to turn there, but this will be on the screen for you. Genesis chapter two, God says this. He creates man and woman, he creates them for one another, and he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. We're going to get to the second part of this passage here in a bit. But the Bible teaches that as a man and a woman come together sexually, that they become one flesh together. It's not just physical. It's physical. It's spiritual. It's mentally. It's, it's an emotional connection. It's with this context, under this covenant relationship, that God says it's good for a man and a woman to come together and to enjoy each other sexually, right? This is a relationship where they put their commitment to one another on the table. They put their yes down, and they say, I'm in, and they vow before each other and before people and before God, they say, I'm not going anywhere, it's a commitment between one another where you say, I'm in. Have you listened to wedding vows, right, for richer or poorer? In sickness and in health, the point is on your best day and on your worst, I'm not going anywhere. And so Bill used this illustration last week. I think this is so helpful. That sex is like fire, okay? And in the right spot, in the right place in your home, it can be such a wonderful gift. So for us, the wonderful gift of fire, I'm convinced it may never come in Savannah because it's not going to get cool enough, but it's, it's the time where you get, it's just cool enough where you get that fire going, you get your jammies on, turn on the Hallmark movie channel way too soon, you know, get a pumpkin spice latte, whatever it is, that's the gift of fire for us. But in reality, the gift of fire is that it provides a way for us to be protected, warmth, a way for us to cook food, and on and on and on and go. That is what uh, fire provides if, and this is a big if, if it's in the right spot. Because what happens if you take that fire out of the fireplace and you put it on the living room rug, all of a sudden that thing that was once your warmth and your protection is now gonna kill you if you don't do something about it. So for the rest of our conversation this morning, what I wanna do is, is to narrow in on this reality that the majority of us, if we were to be honest, and I'm not gonna make you <clears throat> throw your hand up or anything this morning, but the majority of us to some degree or another, we have used God's good gift, his good design of sex, we've used it in a way that it was never intended. And so it doesn't matter if it was something you did 20 years ago, something that happened 20 minutes ago, we're all dealing with these burn marks, so if we can keep going with the illustration, these burn marks that exist inside of us as a result of our own sexual sin. So for some of us, by God's grace, that damage has been minimal. Right? And if that's you, praise God for that. That is a, a gift that you have been spared in that way. For others of us, there's this whole group, and it's larger than you might think, and that people in this room 
who are trying their best to put the pieces of their life back together, but they can't because it's all ash, right? Because of decisions that have been made by them or intentionally or not that pulled the fire out of the fireplace and it burnt the whole house to the ground. And what's maybe even more devastating is the people in this room who had that decision made for them. That it was someone they thought they could trust, that it wasn't their sin that left them wounded, but it was a sin of someone else. Someone they thought they could trust, a family member or a classmate or a teacher or a boss or whoever, right? An ex-boyfriend. Someone who did not treat you as you were a person, or as you are rather, a person with a soul. An image bearer of God who within them, because of that, because we've been given the image of God, you have inherent worth and value, but instead you were dehumanized. You were treated as not a person with a soul, but as someone who exists only so that my sexual desires can be satisfied. Regardless of where we might be on this spectrum, we're all dealing with the consequences, right? And so what I want to talk about this morning, the question that I want us to answer is, is simply, what do we do now? Like, where do we go from here, knowing that that's true about us, that if we're honest, the majority of us have, are dealing with some kind of residual damage, minimal as it may be, or as, as massive as it may be, we're dealing with damage. Where do we go from here? This is the question that I hope God answers for us in John chapter 4. So let me start by saying this. There is so much in this chapter of Scripture, really in this story that we're going to read this morning, that we could do a whole series on just this passage of Scripture alone. Since that's true, we're going to have to take a relatively high approach to it, okay? And I already talked fast. You know that. I'm going to try my best to slow us down a little bit and get us out of here on time. So John 4, look at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Jesus himself, or although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So in verse three, the Bible says that Jesus was with his disciples and that they're trying to make their way from Judea to Galilee, okay? And verse four says, and you might wanna underline this in your Bible, highlight whatever if you do that, he had to pass through Samaria. So if you're reading this at home, you're probably just gonna breeze right over it, okay? What you're gonna assume is that Samaria must be on the way to Galilee from Judea. And if that's what you would assume, you'd be right, that here's uh, Galilee, um, or Judea, Samaria, Galilee. So to get through it, you'd have to go through Samaria. But what's significant about verse four is that even though Samaria was on the way, Jews would never choose to go that way. They would always choose to go around. So without getting too much into it, Jews viewed Samaritans as being unclean. Okay, so I'm gonna try to give you the the Cliff Notes version of this. During one of the deportations from Israel, so Israel was displaced from the promised land, from the land God gave them several different times, if you're familiar with your Bible, and during one of those, as they were gone, not everyone was taken. So we have this picture that when Israel was taken, every single person was taken, but they really just took like the leadership so they can kind of indoctrinate them so they leave behind people, and, and people that were left behind interspersed, right? So people that were left behind from one of these deportations kind of mixed with some Sumerians, they married each other, they had children, and they kind of dispersed in that way. And so when Israel came back out of exile, they viewed the people there, the children that were there, and the people as half-breeds. They were viewed as unclean. They weren't seen as the true people of God. And so when the Bible says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, it's significant because Jews would always avoid Samaria at all costs. And Jesus goes, I have to go that way. I have to, right? Imagine what his disciples would have been thinking. 
because they've traveled these roads before, right? They've been north from Judea to Galilee and they're making their way there with Jesus. It's awesome. He's doing these signs and wonders and miracles and they're on their way and they get to the fork in the road where they normally go around Samaria because that's what they do because we're not going there. And Jesus keeps going straight. Like imagine what they would have been thinking. Look at verse four. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's noon, that's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So again, on the surface, It doesn't seem like there's much in this text for us to wonder about, but if you know anything about this culture, you know there is one thing that should stand out to you, and it's this, that this woman was at the well at the wrong time of day, okay? So in this culture, men were responsible to work however it was they worked, in the fields or as fishermen or in the markets or whatever, and it would be the responsibility of the women in order to make the trip to the local well and get water for their household. And so since water in large quantities is heavy, right, and living in the desert, it gets hot, these women would only take that trip one or two times a day, either super early in the morning or really late in the night. And it wasn't religious or there was no scripture for it to do that is because it was hot if they didn't go early in the morning or late at night. So most of the time they wouldn't make these trips alone, they would go together. And along the way they would do what women do, they talk, right? They'd walk and talk and talk about their families. I didn't mean that as a joke, somebody laughed. <laughs> uh, they would talk about their families and talk about their their kids. And it was an opportunity to build relationships, right? An opportunity for them to connect. But what we see in John 4 is that this woman was at the well in the middle of the day. And she's alone. And so the question we need to answer this morning is, what must have been going on in her life where she would choose to not only isolate herself from her community, but to make her hard work even more difficult by going in the middle of the day? And the Bible's gonna tell us that this woman shows up to the well in the middle of the day, she's expecting to be alone and she's approaching the well, she sees a man sitting there, okay? And so we have to think about this as real people. Like we don't read the Bible like a set of facts. These are actual people's lives, actual stories of, of the savior of the world encountering people in a real way. So she's walking up to the well, this is a bit of conjecture, but my guess is she thought something like perfect. This is exactly what I need today. I come here, I'm trying to avoid everyone and then there's this guy sitting there, right? She probably thought about turning around or just kind of hiding. Maybe, maybe he'll leave and then I can go do her thing. If this were to happen today, you can guarantee she would have put some headphones in and then hope that he didn't talk to her, okay? But our God is intentional. In verse seven, Jesus says to her, give me a drink. So if you didn't know any better, you would think that Jesus is kind of acting superior to her. That he might be saying something like, hey woman, go get me a glass of water, right? But that's not what's happening. At the end of verse 9, we just read, it says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That word that's translated have no dealings with, it literally means to use together. So the idea is that Jews, well, this is what she's saying. He says, hey, give me a drink. She says, hey, Jews don't share with Samaritans. She's, she's kind of finding herself under this cultural stigma that exists of saying, hey, you guys think you're better than us, remember? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They don't share with Samaritans. So what Jesus was asking her when he says, hey, can I take a drink of water from your jar? He's saying, I want to put my mouth where your mouth had been. This isn't a sexual thing. That's not what I mean here. He's, acting, he's not acting superior to her. He's treating her like a person. 
someone who wasn't dirty. He's treating her like a human. And as their conversation continues, they go back and forth a little bit. And what becomes clear is why this woman is at the well in the middle of the day. Look at verse 15. She said to him, sir, they go back and forth a little bit. We're skipping this part. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, and then come. So that seems cruel to me. I don't know about you, but when you read that, it seems like that's not loving at all. Like, why would Jesus go there? Right, because she just said, hey, give me the water you have. You would think that, that it's all on the T, right? You just, Jesus would just give her the water right there. But instead, he goes, hey, go get your husband. Then look how she responds, verse 17. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So here's what's going on. Our God is intentional. Like I said earlier, he's not interested in shallow, surface-level conversation. She thinks he's talking about water, and what Jesus wants to talk about is, hey, why are you here at the well alone in the middle of the day? He says, go get your husband. She goes, I don't have one. And Jesus goes, I know, you've had five, and now you're living with another guy exchanging sex for rent. Jesus doesn't tiptoe around her sin, but he goes right after her in the most intimate spaces in her heart. He goes right after the most tender, the most personal spaces inside of her, the most shame-filled place she has. That's where he goes. Again, this may not seem loving, but in reality, it is the most loving thing Jesus could have possibly done for her because he sees that she's hiding. Right? He sees that she's living her life wounded by her past. Now, we don't know why she has these multiple failed marriages, right? We don't know if, if they died or if it's her sin or sin of her husband's or her ex-husband's, whatever. My guess is it's probably a combination of all of that. But what we do know and what we can see in the Bible is the devastation that her past has caused for her. That she is walking in such an immense amount of shame that she is isolating herself from the community she lives in in an attempt to self-protect against the whispers of the women there. She's living in fear. She's doing her best to keep going, pretending that she doesn't care what people think about her, but we know she does because here she is at the well in the heat of the day, right? And she's hoping to be alone, only she's not alone. Jesus is there, right? The Savior of the world is there, and he wants to set her free, but she doesn't want to go there. She doesn't want to get to that space in her heart because it's too tender, it's too painful and too personal. And so she brings this conversation back to the surface level. Look at verse 19. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. I think so. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So Jesus is asking her questions about her heart. And then again, she sidesteps it and she tries to ask a theological question. Not because she cares about theology, but because she's afraid to dig into her heart because she knows what she's going to find there, right? So she starts to kind of do what many of us try to do when we don't like to talk about the deepest hurts in our lives because we feel too exposed, we feel too vulnerable. There's this thing in Christianity where we want to be transparent enough because we know we're supposed to, because we can't just never say anything. We want to be transparent enough, but no one wants to be vulnerable. Have you noticed... A lot of time people are willing to admit that they used to have a problem with sin, but not many people are willing to admit that they have a problem with sin. That you get, you get a lot of, hey, I used to sleep around. A lot of I used to be addicted to pornography. A lot of I used to, 
but it's extremely rare that anyone would say, man, I'm stuck in this. That in honesty and in transparency and in vulnerability, someone would go, I'm trying my best. And even though I know this isn't good for me and I don't wanna do it, I keep going back to this thing. I'm stuck in this. That's vulnerability. That's not just transparency. This is what Jesus is after with this woman in John 4 because he knows this is where she will find freedom. When she quits hiding, quit pretending like there's these whole rooms and wings of her home that are torched to the ground and she's pretending like she's fine. Hey, just come into the foyer. Just stay here. Let's keep these doors closed. But again, she try, Jesus is going to try to engage her, her heart, and she tries to deflect. Look at verse 23. The hour is coming. This is Jesus. And now it's here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And she says this. I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she, again, she tries to keep from having, having to actually go there in her heart. And she goes, ah, well, the Messiah, this is, the, this is the, tr- the trump card, right? Well, the Messiah is going to come. He hadn't come at that point then. Well, he had, but she didn't know that. That she would just say, oh, well, the Messiah is going to come. We'll figure it all out then. This is us basically going, well, we'll figure it out when we get to heaven, when we have disagreements that we don't want to actually face, right? Well, the Messiah is going to come. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, look at this, you cannot afford to miss this. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. He says, I'm him. Right? Like I said, there's so much in this story. We could do a whole series on it, but I want you to see. What's important for you to see is the transformation that's going to happen in this lady's life. That the woman that exists before verse 26 is completely different than the woman who exists after verse 26. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. She went away into town, and she said to those people that she was just hiding from, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. They actually listened to her. This is the same woman who just a few hours ago was so overwhelmed by her guilt and shame, so defined by her past failures that she couldn't even face the thought of being seen by women at the well. And then here she is running through the streets yelling, come and see a man. Do you see the irony there? You're picking up on that. That this woman who had a reputation for knowing more than a few men is running through. She was incredibly ashamed by that. She's running through the streets inviting people to come see a man who told me all that I ever did. All of a sudden she doesn't care, right, about those whispers that she was living her lives by. She was defined by her past and what people might say about her. And now she's inviting anyone who will listen to come and see the Savior of the world. Come and meet him. And man, I think this story is so significant for us. Because like I said earlier... The majority of us in this room, we've used the gift of sex in a way that God didn't intend for us to use. And the reality is if we would be willing to be vulnerable, that we are far more like this woman than we probably want to admit. That not only are we guilty, but as a result we are deeply ashamed and we are hiding. We're living our lives in fear, doing our best just to keep going, just to put one foot in front of the other, bouncing back and forth from being crippled by what other people think of us and then pretending like we don't care at all. And man, this is true for all sin, but especially for the way that we've gone against God's design for sex. Again, because the power that God has given it in our lives to make us one. Think about what we read earlier in Genesis chapter two where it says this, the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. So this has far more to do about being fully known than it does about actual nudity, okay? 
The idea here is that Adam and Eve, they're in the garden before sin with absolutely nothing to hide from one another and absolutely nothing to hide before God. They're completely uncovered and yet completely delighted in. And they take the fruit and they eat what they're not supposed to and they go against God's good and right design and the Bible says this in Genesis 3, this will be on the screen. And then, when they go against God's good and right design, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. They hide from God. They cover themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That they were naked and unashamed, but because of their lack of trust and God's design for their lives, all of a sudden they feel this need to run and hide from God and to cover themselves because of the shame they feel. This is devastating that this is the first time this actually happened. This was the emotion associated with the original sin, and it's the same thing that you and I deal with today. And our response is no different either. It's one of these two things. We either try to hide or we try to cover ourselves or both. And real quick, just so we're on the same page, let me make sure we understand the difference between guilt and shame because I think they're different. Okay, guilt is I did something bad. Shame is because of the thing that I did or the thing that was done to me, I am bad. Guilt is I have failed and shame is I am a failure. Do you see the difference there? Right, it's the way many of us felt last week when Bill was talking about how we should pursue our wives intentionally, intentionally and we should be attentive to them and intentional with them to pursue their hearts and not just desire their bodies. And he's going on and on about this lofty thing. This is what marriage is. This is how a man should pursue his wife. And I'm sitting right over there next to my wife as one of your pastors. And in that moment, I did not feel I have failed. I felt I am a failure. That's the difference between guilt and shame. It's extremely painful and it has the power to take an immense amount of control in our lives, right? In ways that we can see and also in ways that are much harder to identify. Like one of the primary ways I think that we try to cover ourselves as a result of the shame we feel is in the area of achievement. And so we, it could be achieving in our career or achieving academically or achieving athletically or achieving in one of the roles that God's given us, achieving as a husband or pursuing achievement as a father or a wife or a mom or whatever, that we try to achieve so we can cover our shame, cover the dirtiness that we feel, the feelings we have inside of us that say we're not worthy, that say that we're not good enough. And in that, we try to prove ourselves to the world or prove ourselves to us that we matter, right? So we pursue achievement so we can no longer have to feel like a failure, even if it's just a moment. Right, and what's so difficult about this to identify, what makes it so, so tough for us is that on the outside, it just looks like you're incredibly driven. It just looks like you're really uh, disciplined, right? So it's the athlete who's just grinding. He's up at five in the morning, he's eating right, he's disciplining his body, he's working out, he's doing these things so he can achieve and accomplish on the field. And we praise that, but what's motivating that is not this reality that he knows he's loved by God. He's trying to cover himself because he feels like a failure. So if I can achieve on the field and people are gonna tell me I'm great and I can feel good about myself. Do you understand how this works? On the inside, what's motivating this is our behavior, a desperate attempt to cover the shame we feel for all the ways we've failed in the past. And man, Christianity can just become another arena for us to achieve in. And what a sick and twisted scheme that the enemy has so many of us trapped in, that we would feel dirty and feel the need to perform for God in order, in order to cover that up. 
And that's the version of Christianity that many of us are in. We feel like it's up to us to earn God's love and approval. And under this system of things, again, we do, what we do for God under that system isn't motivated by this fact that we know he loves us. It's motivated by a fear of what's going to happen to us if we don't do it. What's going to happen to me if I don't perform, if I don't achieve, if I don't measure up? What are people going to say? So we try to achieve in order, in order to cover our shame. And then others of us all together, we... We feel this shame in our lives, but we don't try to achieve at all. We looked at our lives and the devastation that's there from past failures, and somewhere along the way, you make the decision, hey, I'm already waist deep. Why not go all the way in? And I, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think this is where the Samaritan woman may have been in her life, that she was broken, that she felt dirty, she felt used, she felt too far gone, and then she meets Jesus. Right, and he makes her feel human again. Like he makes her feel seen. And not as someone who can satisfy his desires, but someone who has worth inherently. He looked at her as a person who hasn't been divorced five times. He saw her for who she is, not what she had done. Right, someone with inherent value and worth, not just an object to satisfy their own personal desires. And this encounter with him at the well, or yeah, for her that day, sets her free from the overwhelming guilt and shame that earlier that morning defined her life. Because she met the savior of the world, and here's how. She's asking questions about water, she's asking questions about theology, and Jesus lifts her head, he looks at her in the face, and he says, I know what you've done. I know who you are, I see you. And he goes, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not afraid of that, I'm not scared of that. I see you and I'm not going anywhere. He's not saying, I see you in a now you're caught kind of way. What are you going to do about it? He's saying, I see you. You can come out of hiding. This is what sets her free from her shame. And this is the only thing that can truly cover our shame is being fully known, vulnerable, exposed, uncovered, and yet fully delighted in. Being fully exposed and yet knowing that we are completely loved by the God of the universe. This is the answer to our question, where do we go from here? Where do we run when we are stuck in our sin, when we are overwhelmed by the shame we feel because of our past failures or even our present failures? We hear the invitation in John 4 from this woman who had her life transformed by the God of the universe where she says, come and see a man who told me all that I've ever done. The one who sees me and the one who delights in me, he completely loves me. And we hear this invitation, instead of feeling the need to run and hide from God and cover ourselves, we go to him, knowing that he's intentional. He doesn't just want part of our hearts, but he wants you to go to that space that you're afraid to go because you know what you're going to find there. To open those doors, to go, look, look how messed up this is. Look how burnt down this is. Jesus goes, I know. I see that. And I'm not afraid. I'm not going anywhere. This isn't God being cruel to us when he wants us to go to that space in our heart. It's him being loving because he wants to set us free because only he can. That's why Jesus doesn't just go, hey, here, take the water. He goes, go get your husband. And this is the question. This is what God's saying to you when you say, yeah, I want the living water that Jesus has to give me. He says, hey, what about this room? What about those doors? What about that, that, those shame you feel for the things that you've done? Again, he's not being cruel. He wants to set you free. And many of us, we've heard a gospel that's partly right. It goes something like this, Romans 3, right? For all have sinned, they all fall short of the glory of God. We've heard a gospel that says that because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, 
when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Christ. Right? He sees us as spotless, as blameless. And, and because of that, the judgment over our life is real, ruled out not guilty. And man, that's good. Right? And that's right. But that's not all the good news. That's not the whole gospel. There's more good news. The good news of the gospel is not a judge declares over your life not guilty, and then you walk away feeling like a dirtbag. A judge declares over your life not guilty, and then you walk away living the rest of your life feeling shame about the bad things that he just said you weren't guilty of. That's not the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is lining out all the ways that the church in Corinth has failed. Really, just the culture of the Corinthian culture had failed. And he says this about them. I want you to hear this. This won't be on the screen, but something will be in a second. He says this. You are se- they are sexually immoral. They are idolaters. They are adulterers. They practice homosexuality. They're thieves. They're greedy. They're drunkards. They're revilers. On and on and on he goes. He just, lay- just heaps this on them. This is, who you- this is what they've done. And then verse 11 will be on the screen. It says this. And such were some of you. Do you feel the shame there? I mean, this is right after he says they, were, they practiced homosexuality, they were sexually immoral, they did all these things, and such were some of you. It's so easy to turn inside of ourselves and go, what are we going to do? To feel a need to run, to hide, to cover ourselves. But the gospel doesn't stop, and just that we're not guilty, he says this, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Because of the work of Christ on your behalf, not only are we our, our guilt removed from us for our sin, but he also covers our shame. We're cleaned by the power of the Holy Spirit and because of the work of Jesus Christ, our guilt is removed and our shame is covered. You're no longer dirty because Christ himself and the Holy Spirit has declared you clean. This means that Jesus didn't just die for the ways that you failed, that Jesus died for the ways that you feel like a failure as well. It doesn't just cover our guilt, remove our guilt, but he also covers our shame, right? So many of us, I think, avoid deep, intimate relationship with God because we walk in shame. We avoid him and everyone else, if we're honest. Keep those rooms shut. Keep the front of the house tidy. We avoid deep, intimate relationships with anyone, but especially with God because we walk in shame. Shame that's connected to things that we've done in our past, things that you can't believe you did that haunt you. How could I have done that? How could I keep doing that? And it makes you feel dirty. And it makes you feel like you need to run and hide from God and cover yourself. But praise be to God that our God is intentional. Right, that he doesn't leave us at the well. He doesn't see us with our headphones in, going about our business and just let us go our own way, but he comes after us. And he goes, I see that. And I want it all. Because I want to set you free. Our God is intentional. He knows that we're gonna struggle this way. He knew that you'd be feeling, he knew that last week, last Sunday morning, when I sat over there next to my wife and, and Bill talked about this is how I should pursue her, he knew that I would be tempted to feel like a failure as a, as a husband. He knew that. He knew that you would be tempted to feel all the ways that you feel like a failure. And so towards the end of of Jesus' life and his earthly ministry, the night before he was going to go to the cross to pay for our sin, to cover our shame, he gets in a room with his closest followers and he takes bread and he breaks it, right? And then he takes wine and he pours it in the cup. He fills it up and he says to us, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And he says, I want you to do this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. And the point here is that for over a thousand years, 
Christ followers have been struggling to believe that their guilt and their shame has been paid for by Jesus. So easy to forget, right? So easy to downshift into believing that it's up to us to earn the love and the approval of God. It's so easy to believe a half gospel that says I'm no longer guilty, but I still have to make up for all the ways that I fail. And Jesus goes, no. So as often as you gather, I want you to take the bread, I want you to take the cup, I want you to drink it. And, do, and as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians verse 11 says, for as often as you eat the bread, you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The point is, it is Christ's body, Christ's blood broken for me is the reason why I have right standing with God. Not my effort, not me, my back-breaking effort, not my body, not my blood, but I'm gonna do this in remembrance of me because I need to remember. Because we need to remember. Jesus says, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. In that, inherently, as he goes, I know you're gonna forget. I know you're gonna be tempted to go back into the way it was. And so what we're gonna do here is we're gonna remember together, as a family, the way that Christ's followers have been remembering for over a thousand years. So there's gonna be some men moving around, they're gonna be grabbing the elements for communion. And so I just wanna spend some time thinking about this with us together. Because like I said, it's so easy to forget, right? It's so easy to downshift into trying to earn God's love and approval. And I think, just like this Samaritan woman, Jesus is meeting us at the well. Right, he's looking us in the face and he's saying, remember. That not only have I, by my life, death, and resurrection, everything that I've done for you, not what you do, not only have I removed your guilt, but I am also covering your shame. Therefore, you don't have to run from me. You don't have to hide from me. You don't have to hide from the people around you. You can run into the streets and say, come and see a man that told me all that I've ever done. We get to respond to that invitation. God looks us in the face, Jesus looks us in the face, and he says, remember, it's my body broken for you, my blood that is shed for you. He's saying, my righteousness counts for you. So I just wanna say something real quick. If you are a believer in Jesus, this is for you. Not if you are a perfect believer in Jesus, this is for you. Not if you never fail, not if you never struggle to believe that this counts for you because that's not what we're saying. We just said inherently within this meal is Jesus saying we are going to forget. So he says, remember. So if you're a believer in Jesus, this is for you, to remember that Christ's body and his blood was shed for you so that you would have complete right standing before God, so that your guilt would be removed and your sin and shame would be covered completely and forever. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is for you. If you would say in this room, you go right now, you go, I'm not a believer in Jesus, but I wanna be, we'd love to have a conversation with you. If you would say in this room, I don't think any of this is true, our encouragement to you would just be let the elements pass, right? Because it's not remembering for you, but we want it to be. Because I believe this is the God of the universe being intentional to us, meeting us in our brokenness, lifting our head, looking us into the face and going, I see everything you don't want anyone to see and I'm not going anywhere. I'm in forever for richer or poor in sickness and health. This is what this covenant is supposed to exemplify Christ and his bride in the church. He says, I'm in. So I'm gonna pray for us and the elements are gonna go through. I just want you to take a moment. Like, I think it's easy for us to go, yep, done this before. Let's remember, praise God. If that's where your heart is, awesome. But I think what God might have for us this morning is that we would just take a moment to just reflect. So we're gonna, you can take it when you're ready. The band's gonna come up here in a bit when I pray, if that ever comes. Uh, and we're gonna sing and we're gonna respond to the goodness and the grace of God for us. 
But as you hold this cracker and this wine in your hand, I want you to think what it is, what Jesus says it is, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And because of this meal, we are remembering that we have right standing before God and no reason to be ashamed for all the horrific things that we've done. That we are fully loved, fully known, and yet completely delighted in. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful. I'm thankful this morning for grace. Because it is hard to preach this sermon. Because of all the ways I feel like a failure. All the ways I failed, yes, but all the ways that I feel like I continue to fail. And not only that, but it's who, it takes on an identity of who I am. But God, you say that we are delighted in. So my hope and my prayer is that as we take communion together as a family, as we respond in worship, that you would be with us, you would help us, because we need your help. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.